0: Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to Patreon.com/NotSeenRadio. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com/NotSeenRadio. Thank you. From PRX, the Public Radio Exchange, and Sandberg Media LLC. I'm David Dalt with Things Not Seen. On today's show, we talk with pastor and author Heidi Newmark about her ongoing work to minister to the scared, the unwanted, and the vulnerable in the heart of New York City. Later on the broadcast, our guest producer Katie Murphy files a report on her experiences living in China. Stay tuned. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Heidi Newmark. For the past decade, she's been the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Manhattan. Prior to her work at Trinity, Newmark spent 20 years at Transfiguration Lutheran Church in the South Bronx. For two decades, Newmark lived and worked among addicts, pushers, prostitutes, people with AIDS, abused women and children, and gang members. She chronicles these experiences in her 2004 book, Breathing Space, A Spiritual Journey in the South Bronx, published by Beacon Press. I spoke with Heidi Newmark in mid-October when she was invited to preach at Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago. Heidi Newmark, welcome to Things Not Seen.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here with you.
0: You're a pastor in New York City, and have you been pastoring in New York City your entire career?
1: Well, I, I actually started out in Hoboken, New Jersey, as an assistant pastor for in a program that was just a year and a half, and then the rest of the time I've been in New York City. I was 19 years in the South Bronx and 11 years in my current church in Manhattan.
0: And tell us about, if you will, the the composition of that church. What what is your what is your congregation like? The
1: the congregation is located in, in a intensely diverse uh, neighborhood in New York City on the Upper West Side. There's a a large public housing project across the street for lower-income residents. There's middle-income rent-stabilized housing across the street from that. There are new luxury apartment buildings that have gone in since I've been there. And there are families of um, undocumented immigrants, mostly from Mexico, living in uh, sometimes in really tiny rooms, Without a bathroom or a kitchen, um, maybe forty people share a bathroom in the hallway. So it's very diverse and the congregation is made up of that diversity
0: and so it's a it's a Lutheran church and it's in the yes. The ELCA? Yes. And so, just for for listeners who may not be familiar with the the distinctions in in Lutheranism, what does that mean precisely?
1: Um, The ELCA, Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, is the largest Lutheran body in North America, and it's uh, the most progressive and liberal, I would say, that most of the other ones are much smaller and don't ordain women. For one thing, so i wouldn 't be able to serve in one of those denominations as a pastor
0: and what was it uh, if you don 't mind speaking about it, what was it in your in your own personal history that made it clear to you that you were called to the ministry
1: oh well that was a that was a long process it it, it didn't it wasn 't clear to me for a long time when I went to college i was I studied poetry therapy which was a way of using poetry in prisons or in nursing homes it, um, as a way of healing and um, having a voice I w- so I thought I would I was also interested in teaching in an urban school perhaps uh, and how did I it was a slow process uh, I took a year off from school and worked on an island off of South Carolina it was during I think it was during that year that I started feeling more called to public ministry. Before that, I was very shy about my faith, and it just kind of felt, I felt more called to be more public about it that year. Uh, But it was a a long process. Actually, when I went to seminary, I had a, um, a trial. It was, today it's called the Fund for Theological Education, but it was a Rockefeller's fellowship they had, which was for a trial year, so even when I went, it was kind of a trial year, but that first year in seminary was when I really felt uh, this is what this is what I'm called to do
0: and so you if I'm hearing you correctly you you edged your way into ministry,
1: yes, I edged my <laughs> way into ministry. It was a slow process
0: and as as you've as you've progressed in ministry, has it become more comfortable to be a public figure, or is that still something that you struggle with?
1: no, I well, I'm an introvert, so I guess I struggle in some ways. But no, I, I've from the time I felt this call, I felt called that it's important to to be to give voice to uh, to to what to to be a prophetic voice.
0: And in terms of being a prophetic voice, when we talk about the ministries that your church, Trinity Lutheran, there in Manhattan, uh, undertakes, it's not just a, a ministry of, of preaching from the pulpit on Sundays. What what other sorts of ministries do you run out of the church?
1: Well, you know, in Manhattan, real estate is at a prime. Mm-hmm. So we have a little piece of, a little corner of Manhattan real estate, and it seems uh, that it's incumbent on us to, in, in living out the gospel, to use that uh, in particularly for all people, but particularly for those who are pushed to the margins of our city, um, and to give a prominent place for those people. And so that includes uh, we have an after school program for children, most of whom come from immigrant families uh, who, whose parents don't speak English, to help them with their homework uh, and to provide a safe place after school for, pa- for kids whose parents are working and can't afford after school care. Uh, <coughs> we have a shelter for homeless queer youth. Uh, that runs every night of the year. Um, We have ESL classes. Um, We have a group called Mujeres en Progreso, which is a a group for Latina women, kind of a support group. Those are some of the things that we do.
0: Now, you mentioned that you have just a small corner of Manhattan, just a little bit of real estate. It sounds like that's a lot of programs to be running. Does your church have a large kind of footprint and physical structure or is no
1: we do not have a large we have a big heart and a small footprint (laughs) we do not have a large space at all uh, but we use it to the full day and night 24 7.
0: when we talk about things like the uh, the undocumented persons that are in your community um, oftentimes they're treated to the extent that they are part of a community at all they're an invisible part of the community oftentimes what if anything, have you been doing as a minister to bring them more to the front, to, to make them feel more comfortable being a part of your community? Because there's a risk in being a public part of a community, isn't there?
1: Yes, well, there are several things. One thing, uh, another use in our space is that we, we work with a group of immigrant labor organizers because uh, in terms of being invisible, that's that's very true. For instance, in restaurants in our neighborhood, uh, there often are uh, immigrant dishwashers, uh, immigrant people who deliver food, and people don't really think about them. People that are ordering food or eating the restaurant are often not thinking about who's washing their dishes, or people who are, deli- who are calling for food to be delivered aren't necessarily thinking about the wages of those people. Um, in many cases, they're not they're not paid a legal wage. And employers, even if they hire someone who's undocumented, are le- by law required to pay them to follow fair labor laws. But they often don't, thinking that no one's going to do anything about it because these are undocumented people. So once a week, usually on Fridays, there's a group of um, immigrants who come to the church as a safe space to talk about what's ha- what labor. Abuses they're experiencing and there's a a labor lawyer and organizers themselves who are who work together and uh, some of the workers themselves have become organizers and so the church is a safe space as a place to do that organizing and then um, the church works with other churches and community members and students from uh, Columbia universities nearby for It's something that brings people together. For instance, we have some people who might work in a restaurant and other people who might frequent a restaurant and but don't want to use their money to go to a restaurant that's abusing its workers. So we kind of can approach that from both angles. Uh, and then, of course, having, uh, in terms of welcoming immigrants, speaking their language and having, um, so we have worship in Spanish uh, and we have ESL classes, things like that.
0: So in in terms of reaching out, you mentioned that you have um, Spanish-speaking uh, worship services, you have ESL classes. What has been the reception of the Anglo community, the, the English-speaking white community, to these kind of outreach uh, efforts? Has there been pushback or has it been warmly received?
1: Well, first I should say our English language community is not white only. It's, it's also heavily African-American. So it's, it's English-speaking, but the English-speaking members of our church are quite diverse among themselves, both in terms of race and in terms of class. The, when I was called to be the pastor of the church, the congregation specifically wanted somebody who could speak Spanish. Because of, um, they saw, they already had our after school program, but it was at that time only once a week. And they saw um, children that were missing school because they had to go with their parents to help translate and things like that. So they, well, that's when they saw the need for having English classes. But they wanted a pastor who could speak Spanish to relate to the Spanish-speaking community there. So that was that was part of my call there. So the those members of the church welcomed that. And I think at this point, our congregation is very diverse, and it's part of its identity. So if somebody really didn't want to be part of that, and I'm sure there are people who feel that way, then they wouldn't join the church. And, so then it kind of becomes self-selected, self-selective, I guess.
0: You're listening to Things Not Seen, conversations about culture and faith. Our guest is pastor and author Heidi Newmark. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is brought to you in part by Liturgical Press. Liturgical Press is a trusted publisher of resources on liturgy, scripture, theology, and spirituality. They've evolved to serve the changing needs of the Christian Church, and they produce resources for pastoral leaders, teachers, engaged learners, and all leaders looking for quality books on faith and culture. Lit Press books are available at your favorite book retailer and online at litpress.org. That's litpress.org. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. If you're just joining us, our guest today is Heidi Newmark. She's a pastor and author, and we're talking about her work with the marginalized in New York City. As you've been doing this work in, in multiple languages and and bringing together these different communities, I'm just curious, as a, as a person who's, who has studied the Bible in an academic setting, you when you're, when you go to divinity school, when you go to graduate school, you sort of get a, a certain type of hermeneutic lens for the Bible, but I'm also interested. Has your direct experience with these diverse communities shown you that maybe when they read the Bible, a community in Spanish is is hearing a gospel that speaks in one direction, and maybe a, an English-speaking community is is hearing different highlights? I guess what, in a in a bilingual sense, is the is the emphasis of the gospel that you've experienced from these two diverse communities?
1: Well, that. That's very true. That, well, that began for me when I was in seminary because I spent one year of seminary in Argentina and a little time in Peru. And that was fascinating because in in some classes we were reading some of the same material, but the students in Latin America were reading it in like a completely different way than the students uh, in my seminary in Philadelphia. So. I had that, that sense of um, diversity of perspective in terms of the scriptures as part of my training. It was, it was good training. Uh, and, well, when I was first for 20 years, almost 20 years in the Bronx, uh, yeah, well, in the Bronx, my congregation was um, African American and Latino, and for the most part, poor. And there were people who were not at all benefiting from the powers that be, so to speak, and so uh, could very readily identify in the Gospels with a preferential option for the poor. Um, and I remember once when a suburban group visited us, and I, we were involved in community organizing, and there was going to be a big uh, Rally related to the schools because at that time the, the there were school boards that have since been abolished that were stealing millions of dollars uh, in poor neighborhoods from from the children really and This rally I preached about this rally the text had was present your bodies as a living sacrifice from Romans And I talked about presenting our bodies on the grand concourse for this rally because our children were being sacrificed our children's future were being sacrificed. Well, the um, the people who had come from the suburbs, afterwards we had a luncheon together, and the adults said, I never heard a sermon that was so political. And the the members of our church council, our leadership body, were co- dumbfounded and said, but it wasn't political. And uh, for, for them it was just, there was a complete integration of... Um, the, the biblical passages, their lives, their social lives, their political. I mean, it. they didn't see it as political, really. For them, it was theology. It was God's word connected to their, their lives. Um, but a different group heard it differently. Now, where I am now, I'll, although I sometimes can preach a similar sermon, sometimes I have to preach a completely different sermon in English and in Spanish. It's not just a Case of translating, because it's a different. Um, people have different lived experiences, and so God's word interacts with that. I mean, it's not that God's word changes, but the context that it's engaging with is different. And so, if if we're talking about talking about it, reflecting on God's word w- in a real, concrete way, then it, it, it's not going to be the same for for different people.
0: I'd like to turn now and ask some questions about the outreach that you do uh, specifically to queer youth Um, and and first of all when we when we use this term queer some of our listeners might not be familiar with that term or the range of terms so uh, who are we talking about in terms of a population?
1: Well it used to be people use the phrase or often talked about people who were gay or lesbian and then People became more aware that there are many people who are bisexual or there are people who identify as transgender. Um, but as time has gone on, there's a greater understanding among many people, I think, that there's a, con- there's a range of, of how people identify in terms of gender and sexuality and that that many people don't like to be put into a category. A rigid category, and so although the word queer in the past used to be an insult, many people today have taken that uh, as as an empowering word uh, that allows people to not have to be put into a box and identify very specifically with um, with their sexuality and gender, but um, but are saying saying you're queer is saying I don't want to be put in a box. Uh, and that's a, the preferred term, particularly among uh, the young people uh, in our church and shelter.
0: This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt, and our guest today is Heidi Newmark. Uh, she's the pastor of Trinity uh, Lutheran Church in Manhattan in New York City. And, and so the people that you are, are serving in this ministry are people who are self-identifying as, as non heterosexual and because they have self-identified in this way publicly, do they face some sort of stigma? Do they face violence? What, what exactly are they facing?
1: Well, the young people that come to our shelter, and our, sh- our shelter serves young people uh, uh, between 17, but mostly 18 to 24 years old. And they're homeless because, uh, yes, because they've been kicked out, in most cases, by their families because they identify as queer. They face so they face homelessness uh, there in many cases they're not from families with a lot of money although there's certainly um, exceptions to that but most of the young people that come they don't have other resources so they've they become homeless. they also face discrimination in terms of finding work uh, It's legal to discriminate against um, a, a, gay people in New York City, it's legal to discriminate against transgender people in New York City. So, and the transgender young people in our shelter um, can't afford, uh, for the most part, surgeries, and they either, they don't necessarily choose to pass as a particular gender, or they can't. And so uh, they, they, to people who have that prejudice they don't look quote unquote normal and it's harder for them much harder for them to find work so they face economic discrimination Uh, many of the youth youth in our shelter are african-american or hispanic they face racial discrimination and they face discrimination based on their their gender identification and sexual orientation so they face all kinds of of struggles and oppressions
0: so if i'm hearing you correctly the 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 particular population that your shelter is serving are people who are almost at an intersection, and that intersection is is sexual or or sexual preference, but it's also racial, and it's also got economic class.
1: For, for I would say for the not for all, but for the majority, yes, and, but, that, but not for all.
0: And so, how do you? I, I'm sure that you have an answer for this, but. Um, How do you speak to those who in the wider Christian family would want to bring out Leviticus 18 and 19 or some of the writings of Paul to say, well, these people are abominations and so we should be just telling them to come back and be normal, and that should be the extent of your outreach to them?
1: Yes, we don't really engage with that because uh, I have come to think that people on that extreme, that it's that's kind of a waste of time. I would just rather put energy into uh, trying to make a difference um, with the young people who've been uh, abused by that type of of spirituality, rather than try to to change the thinking of those people, uh, do what we believe is right. Now, obviously that thinking is causing tremendous amount of damage and destruction, and even death, uh, where young people kill themselves or are murdered. Uh, Not that these churches are saying, go out and kill someone, but by dehumanizing and demonizing young people, they make it easier for them to be murdered. And, of course, I would would like to change that mindset, but uh, I, I don't know how to really change that mindset, so we just try to act against it.
0: So when someone comes and seeks help from the shelter that you have there in Trinity Church, what does their experience of the gospel from your staff and from you look like to them?
1: Well, first, our our staff um, all uh, our staff do not all identify as Christian, um, so it's not our staff. I don't think sees themselves as living out the gospel. Uh, the um, that's the church's motivation for having the shelter. The shelter itself is a separate five o, a separate incorporated entity. and it's not um, so it's not part of the church directly in that sense. But I think the way that the gospel is proclaimed through the actions of the shelter is by loving and accepting people as they are by saying that um, you know, diversity is beautiful that you are beautiful, that you are valued, that you have dignity, that you matter, uh, that, that, that you're good, and that you deserve uh, every, every human right of every person.
0: This is Things Not Seen, I'm David Dalt, we're speaking today with Heidi Newmark, uh, she's the author of Breathing Space, A Spiritual Journey, and she is the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in New York City in Manhattan's Upper West Side. We'll be back in a moment. Listeners, I just wanted to let you know about a new podcast that I'm launching with Emily Grassley from the Field Museum. It's called Divides Aside, and it's science and faith in conversation. This podcast is about laying down differences and finding new ways to understand each other. In these deeply personal conversations, me and Emily talk about our ways of seeing the world and why they they so often come into conflict and why we so often disagree. But as the episodes unfold, suspicion gives way to a growing friendship. Listeners get a chance to glimpse the difficulties and rewards that come when we put our divides aside. You can listen to it on iTunes. You can follow us on Twitter at DividesAside and on Facebook.com, also at DividesAside. Please do listen in. We'd love to get your feedback. We'd love to learn how to do this better. And we'd love to share this conversation with you. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. Our guest today is the Reverend Heidi Newmark. For the past decade, she's been the pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Manhattan. Prior to her work at Trinity, Newmark spent 20 years at Transfiguration Lutheran Church in the South Bronx. For two decades, Newmark lived and worked among addicts, pushers, prostitutes, people with AIDS, abused women and children, and gang members. She chronicles these experiences in her 2004 book, Breathing Space, A Spiritual Journey in the South Bronx, published by Beacon Press. I spoke with Heidi Newmark in mid-October when she was invited to preach at Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago. It's clear to me that uh, that you come at your ministry from a more progressive edge of, of Christian witness and would you be comfortable talking a little bit about your own spiritual journey? Did you did you always have this kind of spiritual and political consciousness, or did you grow into it over the years? Sort of what what led you to this particular place?
1: Um, I think I always have, although I my parents always emphasized, uh, you know, do the right thing. Uh, that. Uh, all people are of equal value. I mean, I my home church that I grew up in, although it was a white, middle-class, suburban congregation, it was uh, in a kind of bedroom community of New York City, where at that time, uh, the Lutheran Church had its headquarters. And a lot of of people who worked for the national church were members of my home church. So I, they, and I grew up with a sense of the global church, uh, the church's work for justice um, in the United States and around the world. That was part of my, my upbringing, both in my family and in my congregational life. So I, I grew up with that. And then when I was in college, I, was doing an independent study on with a poetry, um, a poetry therapy, and I was really torn between my studies and working with children that I was working with in there in a in that program. And I took off a year and worked on an island off of South Carolina. It was a, a poor island, and I saw the work of the church there. Uh, For social justice, trying to organize some things related to housing, and that, you know, it just seemed like that's what the church should be doing, and that just continued when I went to seminary and I worked in inner city Philadelphia, and then when I went to Argentina and I saw, um, I saw churches working uh, for human rights, um, people risking their lives for the sake of the gospel. Uh, in, in a time of the dirty war with a very oppressive government. Of course, some churches, I saw the difference. Some churches went along with the government, were kind of puppets of the government, and then other churches were, were people were being murdered for uh, fighting for human rights. So that, all of that just kind of confirmed and strengthened what I really grew up with. So it's kind of been part of my life for my whole life.
0: A lot of our listeners will not be in an urban environment, such as the one that you are in Manhattan. And they may not have occasion to uh, interact directly with queer youth or with undocumented immigrants, or at least not so they know. I wonder if if you have any suggestions Concretely, for what people across the spectrum who come from a faith background can be doing to reach out to communities on the edge, communities at risk, wherever they are.
1: I would say two things on on two levels. One, on the very local level, is uh, just do a kind of inventory of who who is on the on the margins of this community, uh, who is. Whose needs are being ignored? Who may be feeling left out of things? And how could the church, or how could I, as a person of faith, make a difference in that? I think uh, in any community, you know, there 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 are people in that situation there, and sometimes in our churches there are unmentionable things. That's something to. It would be an interesting group study in a congregation. So what's unmentionable here? You know, Maybe it's domestic violence. Maybe it's teenagers cutting themselves. Who knows what it is? But what's unmentionable in this place? And then because uh, if something is never talked about in church, and we may think, well, that's not appropriate, but the person who's coming to church with that reality in their life, or the life of someone they love, may feel that, well, I have to keep this hidden. This this doesn't belong in this place. And then you can start to feel, well, God doesn't care about this. I'm a... so. I think wherever we are, I mean, there's there's pain and hurt, and there's there's different kinds of injustice and unfairness, and marginalization in any community. So I think locally. You know, every, it can be incumbent on every person of faith to reflect on that and then to think, is there something we could do to help with that? And then in addition to that, um, nowadays, a- unless you're living completely off the grid, uh, people have the Internet, people have TV, people have radio. <laughs> there are so many ways to be aware Nationally and globally, of things going on and of things going wrong, and ways through letter writing, advocacy, uh, financially, there there's many ways that people can uh, make an impact.
0: It also strikes me that this type of work, given that you have limited resources, that you have limited space, that it's a uh, it's work with those on the margins and those at risk this must be in some ways exhausting work. And I wonder what it is that continues to give you hope and continues to energize you.
1: Well, I feel, I have to say, I feel energized by by the work itself. Now, it doesn't mean that I, I work all the time. You know, f- I have a family. I like to write. I, uh, writing is kind of a therapeutic thing for me as well as a creative outlet. But I also feel energized by by the work itself. Um, I recently had breakfast with a transgender woman from the shelter who wanted to talk to me about her faith journey. Uh, First of all, it was very inspiring that she felt enough trust that she wanted to talk to me. And she just had so many questions uh, that I couldn't answer. Uh, Why why does God, basically, why does God allow bad things to happen to people? but by the end of the conversation, she started to ask me, do we have night services at the church? Because she was feeling uncomfortable about going during the day. And she said, well, I li- I'm thinking I'd like to get involved in some way. And I said, well, what, what is life giving to you? What do you like to do? And she told me she really likes to cook. So we started planning uh, Advent uh, dinner church services together that she would organize, you know, the cooking for. And I thought, you know, we started out with these unanswerable questions, and is she an abomination? And by the end of the conversation, she, she's, you know, planning Advent. I find that really energizing. Um, I teach communion classes with little kids. The first week of this recent class, I mean, I've been doing that for 30 years, but it doesn't get boring to me. This little boy came to class, his mother signed him up, and he said, what's a Jesus? He'd never heard of Jesus. And then the second week, which was last week, I was kind of wondering what he'd gotten out of the first week, and he said, I know, Jesus is a table a thank you table. Well, we'd sung this song, uh, the welcome table. We're going to sit at the welcome table. He kind of transformed it into thank you. And I thought, okay, so we've gone from what's a Jesus (laughs) to Jesus is a thank you table. And now I'm hoping that by the third week, (laughs) Jesus is going to be a person who loves us and who shows us about God's love because we spent so much time talking about that, but we'll see. But for me, it's like really exciting. Here's a child who, who, you know, asks, what's a Jesus? And then we get, we get to, to introduce him to Jesus and not introduce him to a hateful Jesus, uh, you know, who's there to, to judge him uh, if he grows up to be gay, but a, a Jesus who, who forgives us and who loves us and who, create you know, uh, c- created a big diversity of people. So I find it very energizing, and I feel really fortunate and blessed to be able to do this work.
0: Do you have a favorite passage of scripture or a favorite book of the Bible? No. Okay.
1: <laughs> I love the Bible. One of the things I love about the Bible is like you, of keeping finding. Even though I've been reading the Bible for like decades, I still find new things that I never noticed before, I think because it's a living word.
0: Well, Pastor Heidi Newmark, thank you very much for speaking to us today.
1: Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure.
0: Our guest today has been the Reverend Heidi Newmark. For the past decade, she's been the pastor at Trinity Lutheran Church in Manhattan. Prior to her work at Trinity, Newmark spent 20 years at Transfiguration Lutheran Church in the South Bronx. She chronicles these experiences in her 2004 book, Breathing Space, A Spiritual Journey in the South Bronx, published by Beacon Press. Though she now lives in Manhattan's Upper West Side, Newmark continues her ministry of outreach to those on the fringes of society. I spoke with Heidi Newmark in mid-October when she was invited to preach at Rockefeller Chapel at the University of Chicago. After a short break, our producer Katie Murphy is going to speak to us about her experiences as a teacher in China. We'll be back in a moment. Things Not Seen is made possible in part through the generosity of our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash notseenradio. That's patreo dot com slash notseenradio. Thank you. This is Things Not Seen. I'm David Dalt. For centuries, China has been the terra incognita, the unknown land, the inscrutable continent. But now, in the 21st century, they're also America's biggest creditor and by turns, ideological ally and ideological foe. I first encountered the mystery and curiosity of a westerner going to China when I read Bill Holmes' book of essays, Coming Home Crazy, then, one of my best friends traveled to China for nearly a decade, taking a Chinese wife and now having a Chinese child. That said, despite having these fleeting and personal glimpses of China and its culture, I still have very little insight into the country at all. That's why I was happy to get this first-hand report from our guest producer, Katie Murphy.
2: I've been in China for over two months, and although I'm getting used to it here, my first impressions still stand. Everything in China is uncomfortable. This is really just another way of saying difficult. I'll be honest, it mainly has to do with walking into my new apartment after a 13-hour flight and a long drive from Shanghai to Wuxi, where I live, to find a wood couch. Literally, a wood couch. Wood chairs. And a bed with an inch thick bamboo pad for a mattress. Food is difficult as well. I have several limitations, and after learning of the gutter oil scandals throughout Taiwan and China, I have avoided street vendors. But this is the kind of corporal discomfort that accompanies any sort of traveling. The kind that can be forgone and forgotten about to make space for all the experiences that will fill it. I work for a private English school in China and currently teach classes ranging in age from 5 to 17-year-olds, although the school does offer some adult classes. I also teach classes at a public school, which is as you'd imagine a Chinese public school to be, mandated eye exercises that, according to an older student who did them herself, might cause more harm than good, guards, utilitarian architecture, and, of course, the seemingly Soviet-Russian-era music playing during lunch. In class, when the English level allows, which is usually in my private English school classes, I start with a few minutes of dialogue. Hello, how are you? What did you do today? What are you doing tomorrow? Just to get them talking. The answers, though, are always the same I'm fine. I'm so so. I have too much homework. I had school today. I'm doing homework tomorrow. They answered this way not because their English is limited, it's not, at least not in that way. I found it has to do with their parents and how scheduled and planned these students' lives are. Education in China is different. More than half of Chinese parents spend a third of their income on their children mostly their education. This includes extra lessons such as English, music, drawing, math, on top of their already grueling school schedule and subsequent homework. They are meant to produce, and they do so through rote memorization. They are told the desired answer and taught to reproduce that exact answer. So when I ask my more advanced students to complete a task, usually a discussion and dialogue-based task, for example, use comparatives to discuss the difference between your country and another country, any country, I give them free reign, they're not sure what to do. They don't know which country I want them to choose. Any, I'll say. They just stare at me. I've since learned to be more specific. Oddly enough, what highlights this idiosyncrasy most is my younger students' use of whiteout. Whiteout isn't something I think of when I imagine buying school supplies for a grade schooler. I didn't use whiteout at that age. But there it is in their pencil bags, along with scissors, glue, and sundry, bright, and cutely designed pens and erasers. When my students get an answer wrong, there is no scribbling over or crossing out. There is erasure. There is whiteout. A similar thing happens when I ask them to speak. I'll ask a question and call on a student to answer. I know the student knows the answer, usually because they start out correctly before what I can only assume to be self-doubt kicks in and they stop and just stare at me. I repeat myself and say, you've got it. Silence. I can tell the student is thinking. Their face scrunches up, their eyes stare past me, or dart up a bit as if looking for a word in their mind, but they won't speak. Try, I'll say. I want you to make mistakes. That's how you learn. I don't expect you to say it perfectly. This doesn't usually work, but when it does, the student is almost always correct with minor grammatical errors, of course. Instead of white-out, they use silence. I've asked my fellow teachers about this, and they've had similar experiences. Even my public school students are this way. There can be no mistakes. In the same vein, there doesn't seem to be an equivalent to practice. I'm sure there is linguistically, but not, to be clever, in actual practice. Practice requires mistakes. I'll give my students a task. The point is for them to practice grammar or speaking or writing, but they rush through it to be the first to say, Teacher finished. All this, the rote memorization, the whiteout, the silence, the impulse to finish first, seem to be the symptoms of an underlying desire for the impossible, for perfection from the beginning. And this is inevitably coupled with the need to erase from memory any attempted failure, like a kind of personal censorship. Maybe it's reaching to extend the metaphor to Tiananmen Square or Tibet or the censorship happening with protests in Hong Kong, but maybe it isn't. What censorship does after years is rewrite history. Life continues, generations die out, and the passing along of history, written or oral. And without that, without the passing along of history, written or oral, what was remembered is eventually gone. Mistakes are undone, and what's left is a blank spot. I went on Hong Kong, I went on holiday to Hong Kong recently. I'm not sure how aware the local teachers at my school are of what was happening there. We aren't supposed to discuss things like politics. All they've said is, ah yes, it is very dangerous there. Dangerous, I thought. Maybe. But what makes the situation dangerous isn't the protesters. In Central, I walk down a highway filled with people sitting quietly and peacefully, listening to a discussion on democracy over loudspeakers. There are first aid stations, food and water stations. There are people misting water into the crowd to keep them cool. There are students walking around with trash bags collecting rubbish. What's dangerous is how the Chinese government might handle it. What's dangerous is that the last major protest ended in a massacre that the public doesn't talk about. What's dangerous is that blank spot. I'm not sure exactly what censorship has to do with my observations on schooling and whiteout and silence and the rote memorization of prescribed answers, but as tenuous as the relationship may be, there is a relationship nonetheless.
0: Katie Murphy lives and teaches in China. Things Not Seen is produced by Sandberg Media, LLC. We're distributed nationally by PRX, the public radio exchange. Today's show was recorded at WBEZ at their Navy Pier Studios overlooking Lake Michigan. WBEZ is not responsible for the content of this program. Additional production for this week took place at the studios of the Chicago Sunday Evening Club here in the Chicago Loop. Our theme music is composed by Gene Keeja, Mary Gaffney engineered the show, Kim Tron and David Dalt did the editing. Our staff includes Travis Abels, David J. Dunn, Natasha Alford, and Alexander Badenoch. You can follow us on Twitter at NotSeenRadio. Visit us on Facebook and like our page to receive regular updates about the show and find out more about upcoming guests. That's facebook.com slash radio, And you can sign up for the free podcast, listen to old shows, send us an email, and learn more about our guests if you visit us on the web at thingsnotseenradio.com. I'm David Dalton. and we'll be back next week with more conversations about culture and faith. Please join us.